So your car breaks down and you are bemoaning your sad plight to a friend and the friend says, uh, he says, I know a guy, you know, I know a guy, I know this guy, he's a pretty good mechanic and uh, go to him, tell him that I sent you, mention my name, he'll treat you right, he'll do a good job and he won't charge all that much money, I know a guy, tell him that I sent you. Could you imagine a situation like that? Well, actually, if we had a car breakdown, we'd hope for a situation like that. We'd hope to get such a recommendation from someone who could fix our car. Well, we want to look this uh, uh, initially here at a Bible episode that's rather similar to that. This comes from the time when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush to give him the job. Go back to Egypt. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and as you well know, Moses was very hesitant to do that. He just really didn't want that job. And he was offering every excuse as to why he shouldn't be the, the guy to do that job. And, and in the context of that, Moses said to God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent you, uh, sent me unto you. Notice that God identifies himself as I am that I am. Tell them that I am sent you. Now the only reason we're referencing that whole episode is to point out that this has, is how God identified himself. Now, I want to suggest to you that Jesus used that same terminology in John chapter 8, verse 56, where it was just read to us earlier. Notice your father Abraham, Jesus is speaking. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice that Jesus uses that terminology, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, grammatically speaking, that's bad form, isn't it? The verbs don't seem to line up the way they should in a, in a properly grammatically constructed sentence. But Jesus clearly was using this terminology intentionally. He wanted to identify himself as God. And so for a few minutes this morning, what we want to do is we want to ask the question, is Jesus truly the divine Son of God? We're going to engage in that study for just a few minutes this morning, but before we get further into it, I want to stop here to thank you all for being present. We're glad that you're here, uh, and we are encouraged by seeing so many who've come together on this Lord's Day to worship God. Thank you for being here. We appreciate you so very much. We have a number of visitors today. And as was already mentioned, we're glad for our visitors. We want you to come back just every time you have a chance to be here. We hope that as we worship God this morning, first of all, that he will be glorified by what we do. That's our prime objective. But secondly, that all of us will be encouraged and edified in in spiritual things. And we want to accomplish that too. So we thank you for being here to be a part of this. Well, the first point that we want to make is that Jesus claimed to be God. There's just no doubt about that. Jesus was laying claim to being deity. He did that by virtue of his relationship 
with the Father. Jesus called himself the Son of God. Now, there's a sense in which all human beings are related to the Father because he is our creator, right? And so all humans, in a sense, have God as the Father because he created us. In a more unique or specific way, all who are Christians are children of God. And we have that relationship as the children of God uh, by virtue of our submission to his will. So we are the children of God by creation. Those who've chosen to be obedient to the gospel are the children of God through their submissive obedience. But Jesus claimed to be even more than that. And the Jews understood that. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus answered that my father worketh hitherto and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because not, he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Notice they understood that he wasn't just saying I'm, a, I'm the son of God like you all are sons of God. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't just saying I'm a son of God because I'm a Jew just like the rest of you Jews are. Clearly, they understood that he was making a unique claim that God was his father and that made him equal with God. And that's why uh, they were going to seek to kill him. And so Jesus claimed to be God by virtue of his special relationship with God. But he also claimed the ability to forgive sins. I want to take you to Mark chapter 2. And this is the familiar episode, and we've referenced it even recently, where uh, Jesus was teaching in a house, and there was such a crowd of people around that there were some guys who came carrying a paralyzed man on a cot, and they couldn't get to Jesus because there was such a crowd in that house and around it. So this is the episode that you remember where they got up on the roof and tore the roof back and let the man down into the presence of Jesus. Now... In Mark chapter 2, beginning verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, that is the faith of the men who took the roof apart to let their friend down in the presence of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? So notice, this this caused uh, them to really be upset. If you stop right there, then who does this guy think he is? Who, who is this guy who says he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Uh, I've pointed out to you before that I think that that objection was a, a, a proper objection. I think we would do the same thing if someone came in here. If I, for instance, came in here this morning and, and I said, Wayne, I forgive your sins. Clayton, I forgive your sins. Eric, I forgive your sins. If I were to say that, I hope that all of you would stand up in objection and say, you can't do that. You have no authority to do that. You can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And so actually, I think that these Jews, when they heard Jesus say this, offered a proper objection. Who does this guy think he is that he can forgive sins? Jesus went on. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say to thee, arise and take up thy bed, go to thy Go thy way into thine house. And immediately he rose, took of the bed, and went forth before them all. And so Jesus, he he did the miracle to prove that he in fact did have the authority and power to forgive sins. But Jesus here was claiming to be God. The Jews were right. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, I can forgive sins. What's, What's the clear conclusion? Jesus is saying that he is God. 
Furthermore, Jesus claimed to be God by allowing himself to be worshipped. In John chapter 9, we have an episode where Jesus healed a blind man. John chapter 9, beginning verse 35. Jesus heard that, uh, Jesus had heard that they cast him out. So the Jews cast out this man that Jesus had healed his blindness, restored his sight. And the Jews were so envious of Jesus that they cast that man out of their synagogue. The man who had been healed. The blind man who had been healed. They cast him out. And when Jesus found him, he said to him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I want you to just notice that last phrase. This man, healed of his blindness, worshipped Jesus. But what I want you to notice in that text is that Jesus didn't object to that. Jesus allowed it to be so. He didn't say, oh, now wait, oh, wait just a minute now. Don't be worshipping me. You only worship God. He didn't object to it. He allowed it to be so. It's, there's an interesting contrast here. Do you remember in Acts chapter 14 when Paul and Barnabas were in the city of Lystra? The men of the city of Lystra tried to worship Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas adamantly objected and would not allow it to be so. In Revelation chapter 22, the apostle John tried to worship the angel who had been instrumental in giving him the revelation. And even the angel said, don't worship me, don't worship me. Wouldn't allow it to be so. Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped. And in doing so, he laid claim to his status as deity. Jesus claimed to be God and actually explicitly said so when he was under trial. Look at uh, uh, John chapter, excuse me, Mark, Mark chapter 14 is what I want. Look at Mark chapter 14. When Jesus had been arrested and when he was on trial before his crucifixion, it says Jesus held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said to him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. I want you to notice here that Jesus used that expression in the presence of the high priest, I am. Are you the son of the blessed? And he said, I am. I don't think that was a coincidence that he, that he, that he worded his response that way. He didn't just say yes or you're correct in what you say. He, I think, purposefully used the expression, I am. And so uh, Jesus certainly claimed to be the Son of God. Now, I want you to think for a minute about claims. You know, you can claim anything that you want. There's just no doubt. Jesus definitely made the claim to be the Son of God. But that, a, a claim is one thing. Proving it is something else. I, I, I might stand up here before you and say, imagine this. I am the greatest basketball player that has ever lived. Uh, there's no. There's never been anybody, likely never will be anybody, 
who's as good a basketball player as I am. In a one-on-one competition with LeBron James, I'm satisfied that I could make him look silly. I'm so much better than he is that it wouldn't even be a fair competition. Could I make that claim? Well, absolutely, I could. You can claim anything you want, right? Claims are one thing. Proving it would be another thing altogether. Uh, and so, what about Jesus? He claims to be God. Is, is there any proof to the matter? C.S. Lewis made an interesting argument about Jesus in this regard. Uh, and I, I see that my charts are really working, working weird here today. But uh, first of all, C.S. Lewis made this argument. If Jesus' claim is false... And he knew it. In other words, if his claim to be God was a false claim and he knew he was lying when he said it, then that's what he is. He is just a liar. If his claim is false, but Jesus sincerely believed that he was the Son of God. No, there's no truth to it, but Jesus was so self-deceived that he actually believed that he was. Then C.S. Lewis said Jesus is a lunatic. But if his claim is true then he is the Lord. So C.S. Lewis made the argument he is either a liar or a lunatic or he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. He is our Lord. Now, what, what is the, the truth of that? Well, I think you know exactly where we're headed. We're going to say that his claim is true. He is the Lord. And the reason why we can say that is not just because we just blindly decide to accept it as being so, But the reason why we can say that is because there is proof. And I want to suggest to you quickly some of the proofs that we have that convince us that Jesus really is the Son of God. First of all, we could talk about His sinless life. In John chapter 8, verse 45, Jesus, before His detractors, said, Because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Notice the challenge that Jesus put forth here. He says, which of you convinceth me of sin? Basically, if I was going to paraphrase that, I would say, and I think you would say, do any of you, can any of you point out any sins that I have committed? Can you demonstrate or show any sin that I have done? Jesus put that out there before his enemies. He challenged them to point out his sin. I want to tell you, none of us could do that because there would be plenty of people who would step forward rather quickly to say, I know some sins that you've committed. Let me start listing them. Because we are, in fact, fallible human beings. Jesus could put that challenge out there without fear that anyone could come forward and prove him to be a sinner because he had never sinned. And and that is the uh, part of the proof that he was the divine son of God. Jesus could put forth that challenge and no one would answer. At his trial, uh, they, they were trying to prove that he had sinned. And they, and they had to come up with some accusation to justify the, the, the demand for his death. Notice this in Mark 14, beginning verse 55. The chief priest and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. Now, stop there for just a minute. Here's Jesus, who had been an openly public figure. If he had ever done anything wrong, surely it would have been known. 
And so uh, the, the chief priest and all the council, they're trying to find someone to come forward and say, I saw, I saw him do this, I saw him do that, I saw him say... They couldn't find anybody who would say that. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. They were in such bad shape as they're trying to find these people to testify against Jesus. They couldn't find any true witnesses because Jesus never had sin. So they bring forth false witnesses. And these guys are so bad at what they're trying to do that they actually contradict one another as they're trying to bring false accusations against Jesus. We would argue that his sinless life is certainly proof of his deity. We definitely would argue that the miracles of Jesus proof of his deity. If we've counted right, there are 35 recorded miracles of Jesus in the New Testament. Did you know that number? 35 recorded miracles of of Jesus in the New Testament. 17 times he healed disease. Nine times he showed power over nature. For instance, calming the storm or walking on the water. Six times he cast out demons. Three times he raised the dead. So there were a lot of miracles that Jesus did. And, a, and a, a, a real diversity of kinds of different miracles that Jesus did. So why did Jesus do those miracles? He did a lot of them, a lot of different kinds of them. Why did he do the miracles? Well, in John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The very reason, John says, the very reason for the miracles and for the recording of the miracles is so that you can believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why Jesus did the miracles, is to prove his deity. It's important to note that these miracles were done openly. People could see and know In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved to God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Notice, these miracles were done in the midst of you. You yourselves also know this. It was not the case that when Jesus did miracles... It was off some distant place, in a private place, in a private setting. Just Jesus and a handful of his friends were present. Then they came back to Jerusalem and they said, You won't believe, you will not believe what we saw Jesus do. And then they relate the miracle. That wasn't the case with the miracles of Jesus. Jesus was a widely public person and his miracles were done openly. People knew and could see for themselves with their own eyes that Jesus was working miracles. Even the enemies of Jesus had to acknowledge that this was true. In John chapter 11, beginning verse 46, this, this by the way, is after, just after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus, and, and if you can imagine it, Jesus' enemies are even going to be upset about that. Jesus had raised a man from the dead. Some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Then gathered the chief priests and, uh, and the Pharisees at council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. Notice, they acknowledge this man doeth many miracles. Well, why don't you just believe him? 
If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Their only concern was with was for their status and their political power. But the truth of the matter, as they confessed among themselves, is this man doeth many miracles. And so it wasn't just the friends or the close disciples of Jesus who were acknowledging his miracle working power. Even his enemies were acknowledging that. And so the miracles of Jesus are certainly powerful proof of his deity. I think we would add to these proofs fulfilled prophecies. By all counts, there's something just a little over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, let's say there are 300 prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies. And so a detailed study, which we obviously don't have time to do this morning, but a detailed study of the prophecies of the Messiah and Jesus' fulfillment of those prophecies is certainly powerful proof that he is the Son of God. Let me, let me just give you some examples. Now, the reason I picked these examples is because there's this quibble that is made by some skeptics who say, they say this, well, listen, this Jesus that you're talking about, everybody knows that he was sort of a megalomaniac. He was, he was, he was kind of crazy, you know. But he did have enough sense to read the Old Testament. And when he read the Old Testament, he read those prophecies about the Messiah. And so what he did is he set about to self-fulfill the prophecies. In other words, he, he, he read the prophecies, and okay, I'll do this, so it looks like I'm the one that the prophecy was talking about. Self-fulfilled prophecies. I'm going to tell you, uh, that's not possible, at least not possible in the vast majority of the prophecies about the Messiah. I'll just give you a couple of examples here. For instance, what about the birth of Jesus? Well, the Old Testament foretold the place where Jesus was to be born in the city of Bethlehem. You know what? A person doesn't have any power to dictate where they are born. Jesus couldn't have done that, right? That was completely not within his control. Also, the very manner or nature of his birth, Isaiah 7, 14 says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Jesus didn't, obviously, couldn't have controlled that as, as some sort of faker trying to prove he was the, the Messiah by self-fulfilled prophecy. He couldn't have done that, right? What about his lineage? We know that the Old Testament says that Jesus would be a descendant of Abraham. It further says he would be a descendant of David. You can't choose your ancestors. You're not, you're not in position of power to do that. Jesus couldn't have self-fulfilled his ancestry or even his suffering and sacrifice. I remind you of Isaiah chapter 53. We all, you know, really love Isaiah 53 as it talks in such passionate terms about the suffering of the Messiah and gives details about how he would be tortured and killed, Jesus wouldn't have been in control of that either. He couldn't have controlled how they would execute him, but it all came true in exact detail. And so what we're saying in all those cases and tons more is that the fulfilled prophecies concerning the Messiah prove that Jesus was, in fact, the divine Son of God. And then finally, let's talk about the resurrection. I believe that the Apostle Paul says that the resurrection serves as the ultimate proof 
that Jesus is the divine Son of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, He's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. There's a whole lot that proves that Jesus was the Son of God. I think Paul is saying, on top of it all, the ultimate proof being the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In Acts chapter 1, it says that he, Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion. You understand his passion there. It talks about his suffering and death. So he showed himself alive after his passion, after his suffering and death, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Notice, these were infallible proofs. It wasn't, it just wasn't, you know, I think I might have seen Jesus. There was a crowd of people, and I think maybe Jesus was in that crowd. I'm not, I'm not sure, but maybe I saw Jesus. No, that wasn't the case at all. He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Uh, and by the way, uh, it wasn't, and so it wasn't the case that his disciples were misled or confused. No, th- these were infallible proofs. Uh, and what happened as a result of that is that it changed the lives of those disciples who saw him. We've made this argument plenty of times before, but to me, to me personally, this is the most powerful proof of Jesus as the resurrected Savior. When, when they came to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, in, in Matthew 26, verse 56, it says, All the disciples forsook him and fled. All the disciples forsook him and fled. You know, we often pinpoint Peter because he was so vocal in denying Jesus, and he was. But G- Peter wasn't the only one. It says all the disciples forsook him and fled. But something happened. Something changed them. Because by the time you get into the book of Acts in chapter 5, in Acts chapter 5, beginning verse 40, it says, When they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. So up here, we've got a bunch of cowards. But not that long later, really just weeks later, we've got fellows who are so bold that in the presence of the council, by the way, that council was the same group of men who had called out for the death of Jesus. This council that they're called before, they are the men responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. And before that very council, they would not step down. They would not back up. Uh, And even when they were beaten and threatened, They continued to preach about Jesus. What happened? Between here and here, what happened? What happened was the resurrection, right? That's what happened. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They weren't going on the basis of something someone else told them. They were going on the basis of what they'd seen with their own eyes. And what they've seen with their own eyes convinced them Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the resurrected Son of God. They were willing to die for that cause. And history tells us that they did. And so, again, that's proof positive. And, of course, there were not just a few, not just a handful of people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 4, Paul lists them, catalogs the witnesses of the, erect, uh, of the resurrection, the eyewitnesses. He said, Jesus was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. After that, He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above 500 brethren at once, 
of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. So, it wasn't just that there was a few who claimed they saw the resurrected Jesus, maybe just a handful of his closest friends and disciples who said they saw Jesus resurrected. No. He was seen by above 500 eyewitnesses who were willing to give their testimony. He basically says, some have fallen asleep, most remain to the present. If you want to go ask them, go ask them yourself, is basically what he's saying, right? And by the way, Paul is the author of these words, right? He speaks of, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. We could comment about Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? And it changed his life. He saw the resurrected Jesus. It completely changed him. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, where we're studying in our Sunday morning class. Ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted and profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. I want to tell you something. If you could convince Saul of Tarsus that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, that he was truly the divine Son of God, if you can convince him... I'll tell you that it's proof positive. Proof positive that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. That's fine. That's important, but I mean, there have been others. You know, there have been plenty of deceivers through the centuries who claimed to be the Messiah. He wouldn't be the only one who ever claimed to be the Messiah. He made the claim. He certainly did. But what's necessary is the proof. And there's ample proof, there's powerful proof, there's conclusive proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. What about you? Do you believe this? There's every reason to believe it. There's, in fact, there's no reason not to believe it. That there's no reason not to believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God. All the proof is available. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's a very provable conclusion. Since that conclusion is true, then the question is, have you acted upon that truth? Have you, in accepting that truth, have you, have you submitted in humble obedience to the gospel of Christ? That's logically, logically speaking, that's all that matters, right? If it's true, and it is, then logic says you need to react to that and respond. Have you obeyed the simple gospel plan of salvation? Hear, believe, repent, confess, confess your faith in Jesus. Be baptized for the remission of sins. If you've not done that, we hope you'll make that decision without further delay. We'd be more than willing and, and anxious to sit down and study with you if you have additional questions. Let us know how we can help you in that regard. But you need to make this decision to obey the gospel. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, you've not been faithful to the Lord, you need to come back at Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.